I, I love that you guys are in 1 Peter. Um, 1 Peter, and I'm not just saying this, is my favorite New Testament book. And the reason why it's my favorite, and this may sound funny, is because Peter wrote it. And what I mean by that is Peter wrote this. Knuckleheaded, crazy, put your foot in your mouth, bigoted Peter wrote this book by the power and the inspiration of the Spirit. So I, I just can't believe sometimes when I read First Peter that like, man, this man who was so jacked up, so messed up, is the one that God is speaking through and, and working through. And I, to be honest, I resonate way more with Peter than Paul. Because I'm knuckleheaded and stubborn and I put my foot in my mouth all the time and I'm jacked up and yet the, the power of the gospel is big enough and better than my sin and my hang-up. So I, I love 1 Peter. And my favorite passage in all of scripture is 1 Peter 1 verses 3 through 12, which Andrew, Pastor Andrew, you preached last week? Pastor Calvin. So I was bummed that they didn't give me that one. But Anyway, cool thing though, cool thing is that actually the first time I came and preached here, I preached 1 Peter 1 verses 3 through 12. So it's all good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't remember that, Pastor Andrew? Okay, yep, that happened. I get the privilege of, of, of sort of coming next to that powerful passage and applying some of that gospel truth. So, uh, Father, uh, I pray in Jesus' name that your word would go forth in power, and God, that you would have mercy on me, a sinner. And Father, that for us who are in this room, who are broken and hurting, which is all of us in some capacity, that the power of the gospel would cut through sin and doubt and depression. And Father, that you would give us faith and help us in our unbelief. Lord, I pray that as we stand on holy ground, not because I'm here, not because any one of us is here, but rather we are opening up the word of God. And just like Moses, when it said that when the burning bush, he said, take off your sandals for you are standing on holy ground. When we open the Bible, we need to posture ourselves in such a way that we understand that the Lord of glory is speaking. So, Father, humble us. We are so distracted. Our hearts are so divided. I know mine is, at least. Quiet us. Give us focus. Holy Spirit, take over and do what only you can do, and we'll give you all the credit. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. 1 Peter 1 Verses 13 through 21, let me read it. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deed, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, 
knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Amen. I want to break down this passage very simply um, with four points, and they all sort of sound alike. Uh, number one, I want to look at we are to live holy because of the hope that we have. So that's the first point. And by the way, that'll be the longest point. That'll be the point we spend the most time on because I think it's so important in light of the context of this scripture. So the first point, live holy because of the hope that we have. Second point, live holy because your Father is holy. Your Father in heaven is holy. Third point, live holy because God is God and you are not. And then fourthly, live holy because of Christ's great rescue. So let me say those again and we'll jump right in. Live holy because of the hope that you have, verse 13. Live holy because your heavenly Father is holy, verses 14 through 16. Live holy because God is God and you are not, verses 17. And then live holy because of Christ's great rescue, verses 18 through 21. So let's jump right in. Um, by the way, I know that many of the college students and young folks who are here are in a hectic time right now, right? So if you fall asleep, I won't say anything. I know that... It's finals and the end of the year is coming, so we give you permission just to zonk out, and then I'll just make sure I walk up beside you while I'm preaching, and then just sort of nudge you a little bit. So that's all we'll do, though. We won't call you out in any way or anything like that. Um, also, I I'd be remiss, I get to have my wife here with me, Sugar. Can you say hi? Yeah, yeah. She, um, this is actually, is this your first time coming with me when I've... Okay, so second time um, coming with me, and it's just always good. Our kids stayed with, I have, we have three kids, and they all stayed with three separate people last night. So we went out on a date, and we get to come to hang out with you and all that good stuff. So my wife is here, and I'm grateful for that. All right, live holy because of the hope that you have, verse 13. Let me start off by asking this question. Have you ever wanted to please someone? Like, think about it. Have you ever worked hard to gain someone's approval? And it can be a daunting thing if you think about it. It can be a stressful thing to try to do this. And as I thought about this uh, a little bit, it dawned on me that when we go on this pursuit of trying to please someone and gain their approval, the final say is with the one to whom we are trying to please. Have you ever thought about that? At the end of the day, if we consume ourselves with gaining the approval of someone or, or putting all of our eggs in the basket of the person to accept, we are putting all our eggs in that basket for the person to accept our efforts. We work tirelessly to please others, and yet our joy and our success hinges on whether that person is satisfied and actually accepts our efforts. So in other words, when we live our lives to please another, it all depends on the character of the other person. 
We could work hard to gain approval and please someone, yet that person to whom which we are trying to please could say to our efforts, not good enough, or I don't accept it. There are no doubt some of you in this room who have been shaped by that truth. You have lived your life maybe trying to please a parent, and yet you felt like you never could. Or maybe you've tried to live up to something or, or, or to please a sibling or a spouse, and yet you feel like you've always fallen short. You know exactly how that feels. So it all depends on the character of the one who is receiving our efforts, whether we succeed or not. Which leads me to the question of this. Is God pleased with you? Think about that question. Have you ever asked that? Have you ever felt the weight of that question? Or maybe you don't ask it out loud, but maybe you live your life sheepishly trying to earn God's approval while all the while struggling with the fear of doing a horrible job at it. I know I do. Is God pleased with you? Does he approve of you? Does he accept you? Does he accept me? And I believe this is a question that all of us should ask and that we should wrestle with this question. And most of us probably already have. But the, the, the crazy thing about that is that in this room, there are many people who would answer that differently. Some of you would say something like that. Some of us would say something like this. Yes, God accepts me because I am kind to others. I go to church every Sunday. I make it my aim to not hurt anyone. I give generously to those who are in need. And we have a long list of things and stuff that we think earns God's approval, right? Let me just say this for me and for you. If you are thinking that way, I want to warn you. If you are living that way, don't be deceived and self-consumed with your ability or my ability to earn God's favor. It doesn't work when you actually assess the situation, when you step back and think of this holy God that we just read about, this perfect and holy God who commands our obedience and allegiance perfectly. And that he will never settle for our self-righteous efforts in and of themselves. When you assess that situation, we have to ask the question, Am I accepted? Does God approve of me? And the reality, and this is going to be good news, by the way, so just work with me, stay with me here. Sin has tainted our righteousness to the point where in and of ourselves, the Bible says there is no righteousness. So how can we be accepted by God is the question every one of us must ask. The fall affected and tainted all of us, even in our best efforts towards righteousness. Sin taints even our best deeds and our acts of kindness. Can I tell you a story about how, how that will illustrate how, that, how I'm jacked up even on my best days? So I was discipling this guy, and I poured a, a bunch of time, and I loved this guy. We were reading and growing together. We were, we were loving the Lord, and, and he was growing, and I was just so excited, and it was amazing. And, and one time, I went to preach somewhere, and I brought him with me. And they gave him the opportunity to get up in front and to 
share a little bit about his story. And so me as like a proud spiritual father, so to speak, I'm in the pews and I'm like, yes, this is awesome. Man, this is great. Get up there and you praise the Lord, man. All glory to God. Go, go, go. And then he got up there and he had the nerve to give all the glory to God. He didn't say anything about me. And you may be laughing like I was like sheepishly like, man, you got to mention me at least once. Like I've poured my whole life into you. Even on my best discipleship moments, I was at the center of it. And here I am thinking, how dare he give all glory to God? Yes, he did it all and all that stuff, but where is my accolades? At least give me a shout out one time. You see, even our best efforts are tainted. And God cannot accept our tainted efforts. Now, just keep walking with me. He is a perfect God, and we should feel the weight of that statement. A perfect, holy, righteous God cannot and will not accept our sin-stained offerings in and of themselves. So the question, how do we please God? With this in mind, it would be easy for us to just give up and say, what's the point? If all we do is tainted by us and our selfishness and sin, even in our good days, how can we ever please God? We can never be accepted by him, we might cry out. And in some ways, that's a good conclusion to come to. This is the best conclusion we could come to because ultimately the message of the Bible is that we cannot please God in and of ourselves. The Bible doesn't try to hide this fact. As a matter of fact, from the beginning to the end, the message is clear. Romans 3, 9 through 11, For we have already charged that all are under sin, as it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands and no one seeks for God. We all miss the mark. And the storyline of the Old Testament is that they tried to these attempts to try to please God and make things right, and they failed time and time again. And even more dangerous, they actually believed that they had it in and of themselves to make things right with God. And God told them it's impossible. So some of you are asking, well, how does this have to do with 1 Peter, well, we're going to get right into that. I told you this is the first point that I want to emphasize. God told them in the Old Testament, you need to stop believing that the answer lies within you. And if you do that, we can get somewhere, God told his people. But that was a hard thing for them to grasp. Guess what? It's a hard thing for us to grasp. In our self-sufficient culture where we are told we can do anything we put our mind to as long as we work hard, it is hard to receive the message that when it comes to our spiritual standing and acceptance before God, we can do nothing. So to answer the question, can we please God? Will God accept us? Let's let the scriptures answer this. Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody knows that verse, right? But have you ever noticed that that's just the piece of the verse? 
That actually isn't the end of the sentence. Oftentimes when we quote that verse, we tell it to someone who thinks there's, you know, righteous. We say, no, actually, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But have you ever kept reading the same sentence? Here's what it says. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24. And are justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So to answer the question, does God accept us? The gospel says, yes, absolutely God accepts us. In Christ, we are accepted. We are declared righteous and free from both the penalty of our sin and the power of sin in our lives. So the bad news of the Bible is that in our own self-efforts, we are condemned and unable to please God and live up to his righteous decrees. But the good news of the Bible is that in Christ, we have one who does it for us. Jesus rescues us. And this radical, scandalous nature of the gospel is that when Christ is our Savior, think about this, he imputes to us his own, he gives his own righteousness to us, so much so that when a perfect and holy and righteous God now gazes upon you and I, he sees the perfect righteousness of his Son, and he gladly and delightfully accepts us. He welcomes us into his arms and calls us his children. And like a proud papa, he sings over us with mercy and grace, according to Zephaniah. You know that God sings over his people. And how do we receive this acceptance from God? By our good deeds. By our own self-efforts, by our own pulling ourselves up by our spiritual bootstraps? No. Romans 10, 9 through 3, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So how do we receive acceptance from a holy God? Not in our self-efforts, but rather we put our faith in someone greater than ourselves. And that's what brings us acceptance. This is the gospel. Let us never forget this. Let us be fueled by this and repeat the truth that Jesus did for us what we can never do for ourselves. And to admit this every day and to run to God with this in in mind. And we will be set free from the bondage of trying to earn God's favor. So our passage today exhorts us to live 
a godly life, but all these exhortations are grounded in God's saving work. We cannot talk about being holy unless we understand first what God has done. And that's why Peter started this letter with verses 3 through 12. Believers are to obey. Why? Because they are God's chosen children who have been snatched from the grips of sin and Satan and the gates of hell have been shut and heaven's doors have been busted wide open because of Christ. And therefore, we now get to live in a way that we were designed to live. We get to imitate our Papa now, our Father. One man said this, God's commands are always rooted in his grace. Why do I emphasize that? Because I don't want to give you some spiritual sort of self-help sermon where I say, do this and do that, and God says do that, because the Bible doesn't work like that. It first tells us who we are in Christ, and then in light of that truth, we go and live it. And by the way, to confuse the order would be disastrous. You would be a weary frustrated child of God if you thought that I first have to live holy in order for God to accept me. The result of that would be works righteousness instead of seeing a holiness as the result of God's grace and power. See, this is a response to the love of God in Christ. So Peter here is concerned about how we ought to walk and please God. He calls us to be holy. But in light of the fact that God is already pleased with us because of Christ's sacrifice, we are not earning God's favor, but we are responding to God's favor. And that's key for us to understand in this room. How does religion work? Religion works this way. If I obey, then God will accept, love and accept me, right? That's what, how religion works. The gospel works this way. I'm loved and accepted, therefore I get to obey. It's totally different. Religion says if I obey, then God will love and accept me. The gospel says I'm loved and accepted already, therefore I choose and I get to obey. So Peter knows that the only response that we could have to, chapter, to verses 3 through 12, with which Pastor Calvin preached, our only response to a such a loving God and glorious salvation is we cheerfully and gratefully obey the Lord because God has given us life when we were spiritually dead. I want you to think about this. Peter actually believed that when we know the price that Christ paid, and are secure in our standing before God, secure in our standing before God, that this will inevitably lead to a change in our lifestyle. Peter believes this, that if you get the gospel right, our life will follow. Not only Peter believed that, but even John, the apostle John in 1 John 3, here's what he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, 
And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And so there's the hope. And then verse 3, and everyone who thus hopes in him, in the gospel, purifies himself just as Christ is pure. You see, having hope in the gospel is supposed to change us. Hope that we are the children of God and one day we will see our king face to face and be glorified like him. He who has that hope, she who has that hope, actually their life is transformed. They walk holy lives with the hope of anticipation. They walk in hope that leads to walking in holiness. And this is a powerful fuel for our life. And I know this is a long first point, but this is the most important. And this sets the tone for some of the straightforward, practical helps in living this out. Let me just say this again, and we'll move to our second point. And these are going to be really quick points. Walking in hope of the gospel leads to walking in holiness. That's why it says in verse 13, look at our passage, therefore, that's a powerful word, therefore, therefore, meaning everything that was just said in verses 3 through 12, this glorious salvation that was proclaimed so much so that even when the angels look upon it, they are, their mouths drop and they say, whoa, this glorious gospel, therefore, in light of this good news. 13, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter tells us, first, we must live in light of hope. He says, prepare your minds for action. Some translations say, gird up your loins, which no one says these days, but that's what it meant. It simply means pull your thoughts together. Have a disciplined mind. Don't believe the lies. Living in hope means to be thinking of heaven continually. The discipline of heavenly mindedness. So hard to do though. The image here is that of a robed man in those days tucking in his shirt or his skirt under the belt so he can be free to run and free to work. He says, gird up your loins, get your mind in order. Peter is also using some amazing imagery here. I want you to see this imagery. He's using the idea from the Passover supper. The Jews at Passover were told and they were supposed to eat the meal in haste and be ready at the drop of a dime to move to the promised land of rest. So this beautiful imagery as, as you are remembering what God has done, that's what the Passover was for, be ready. Be ready to go into those promises because you never know when it's going to happen. It's a beautiful imagery of whatever you are doing, know this, that it is temporary. Eat, drink, live with a promised future in mind. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, this makes, it, this makes this all make sense. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. 
Everything in life, raising kids, having babies, doing your job, going to school, we do all this with life and fervor, but with the idea that there is something greater coming. So whatever we do, whether we eat or drink or play video games or, or watch the Warriors on the TV, do it all to the glory of God because it's all temporary and there is something far greater coming. He says, be sober, which means be self-controlled and calm. Don't be self-indulgent and chasing the pleasures of this world, but have some self-control. The good things of this world are always over-promising us and always under-delivering. And we can get sidetracked in our own little stories and forget the bigger story of significance and joy. Be self-controlled. And don't live for right now, but for what is to come. Hard to do, isn't it? For example, when is the last time any of us woke up and said, God is coming back? That's what Peter wants suffering, hurting people to think and to realize. Today could be the day. That's pretty cool. And when you think of that often, that today could be the day where all my pain and brokenness and suffering and finals and all this stuff is wiped away and I will be ushered in to a beautiful existence where the glory of God is front and center and my sin has been washed away and it is, it is removed from me and I can worship God and be who he intended me to be. That is a beautiful thought, especially during finals week. Peter says, think often on what is to come and don't be lured by the false treasures of this world. Even in our hardship, even when we get the cancer report, even when things are going bad with our children, even when our marriages are struggling, we just are told to think and have hope in something greater than ourselves. And that actually changes our life day to day. It's supernatural. Romans 8, 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So we live holy because of the hope we have. Now these next few are just a few minutes each. Number two, we live holy because our Father in heaven is holy. Verse 14 and 16, as obedient children do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And the argument here is very simple. The, what he's trying to say is this. Children inherit the nature of their parents, and God is holy, therefore as his children, we should live holy lives. Because it says later on in 2 Peter that we are partakers of the divine nature of God. Again, as children of God with hope, don't be lured back, it says, into our former ignorance, into our former slavery. Don't go back. If you have trusted and tasted and seen that Jesus is all sufficient, don't run back. Because every single day, every one of us are lured by these false saviors. 
Some of us, for some of us, it's the, the well-being of our children. We think as long as our children are okay, then my life is okay. Ultimately, that's not going to bring you the joy that you think it will. For some of us, it's getting a career and getting married and finding a spouse. And we think, if I could only do this, then it will be worth it all. And I will receive, I will be complete. No. All those are great things, and we praise God for them, but they cannot do for you or me what God can only do. So he says, don't go back to that. Don't believe the lie that Jesus is sort of on, like there's things that are on par with him. No, Jesus is always better. And then that beautiful reminder, he says in verse 18, he who has called you. Even as he's calling us to this greater way of living, this greater purpose, he keep, continually reminds us that we are su secure before God. So as we're striving for righteousness and holiness, we are constantly remembering that even on my worst day, I am secure in Christ. When I blow it, I remember that Jesus has paid it all. And that propels me to move forward in righteousness. I no longer have to be holy. I get to be holy. And so he says, your father is holy, so you be holy. You are his. Your life is not our, our, your own. It belongs to the one who purchased you in love with his sacrifice. God is making us like a self, himself. He not only saves us from what we deserve, he then, through the power of the Holy Spirit, begins to transform us. None of us should be the same. And by the way, it's a slow grind. How many of you feel like you got it, this whole Christian thing down pat? Raise your hand real quick. Come on. Ain't none of y'all holy in this room? <laughs> no, exactly. None of us raise our hand because we know ourselves. We know the struggle. But yet God is meticulously transforming us into the person he designed us to be that is not ruled by sin but rather is ruled by hope and, and, and gratitude. Romans 12 2, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern that is the, what, that what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. God is making us like him. And here's the great thing. For some of you, you hear that and you say, oh, no, brother. I'm dropping the ball in that area. My, my life verse, if I have one, is Philippians 1.6. You know what it says? He who began a good work in you, will he himself complete it. <laughs> and I bank on that. Because if it's up to me to, to finish this stuff, I'm done. And so are you. But God is making us like him. We are to live holy because God our Father is holy. And then finally, our third point. We have a few minutes here. Live holy because God is God and you are not. <laughs> Verse 17, listen to what it says. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Basically, let me just sort of do some Richmond Ebonics here. What is this saying? God runs this. <laughs> God runs this, not you or I. And having a healthy fear of this is a good thing, not a condemning fear, 
Because Romans 8.1 says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but a reverent fear, understanding that God holds you and my life in his hands. He gives and he takes away, he corrects and he checks us when we go astray like any good father would do. So when we understand that God is God and we are not, it keeps us humble. God sets the rules and standards and then he enables us to live by them. Philippians 2, 12 through 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I'm glad that second part is there. What if it stopped with work out your salvation with fear and trembling? We'd be like, oh my gosh, I'm going to fail. But the very next sentence, for it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure and delight. So what is this judgment that Peter wrote about? It's the judgment of a believer's works. Not has nothing to do with our salvation. When we trusted Christ, Christ, God forgave all our past, present, and future sins, and he declared us righteous in his son. Our sins have already been judged on the cross, and therefore they cannot be held against us ever again. But when the Lord returns, the, the Bible says there will be a time, a judgment, a judgment seat of Christ. And each of us will give an account for our works in the Lord. And we'll re receive our appropriate reward, but there will be no condemnation. This is a family judgment. The father dealing with his beloved children who he will in no way cast out. God will search the motives of our ministry. He will search the motives of our hearts. He will examine them, but he assures us over and over again that we are secure. And that's an encouragement. So he's, we live holy because God is God. He sets the rules. He sets the standards. And we should have a reverence of him. And then finally, my fourth point. Live holy because of Christ's great rescue. Verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. He ends this section by reminding them again of who they were and who they now are. You were ransomed, he says. What does that mean? It means that you belong to someone else. You were a slave to someone. You were slaves. I was a slave to my flesh and to Satan and to my desires, but you and I were purchased by the blood of Christ. That's what it means when it says ransom. And it's not just any old purchase. It says it is the precious blood 
of Christ. This imagery of the Old Testament that year after year they had to come to the great high priest and they had to offer this sacrifice and they would kill a lamb for the temporary overlooking of their sins. And that's why they had to do it year after year after year, coming back with fear and trembling and saying, oh Lord, forgive us. But this blood from this lamb is eternally sufficient. And later on, you guys will get to 1 Peter 3. In verse 18, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. He reminds us, why are we to be holy? Well, because number one, like, we have a hope that drives and fuels us towards that. A hope that is something greater than ourselves and in something greater than ourselves. Secondly, we, have, we, we, we are to live holy because our Father who loves us is holy and we want to imitate Him and He is transforming us into the image in His own image. Thirdly, we're not in control. God is and we need to have a fear. He sets the rules. And then finally, you are to live holy because of this great rescue. We owe it to Him. He has done everything for us. Even our very faith at this moment is a gift from God. And this great rescue was all a part of God's perfect plan. Our hope is not in ourselves, as you see in verse 21, but in God who saves. And this is the greatest motivation for living holy. So in closing, let me say this. What do we need practical thing and then I'm praying what do we need when we are tempted by worldly fleshly things that tell us that they can satisfy us for many of us we think well maybe what we need is just to buckle down spiritually to get all of our spiritual ducks in a row and then we will be able to live life of meaning no, in this passage, Peter says the opposite. He says, here's what you need to do. When life is hard and when things feel like it's it just impossible, when it feels like you are being tempted, tempted beyond your, your capacity, when you are struggling with sin over and over and over again, when you are struggling secretly with things that no one else knows about, what should we do? Peter reminds us we need more of the gospel. We need to hear it over and over again. Do you see that pattern here? He says, here's who you are. Now, therefore, be holy. And matter of fact, at the end of this, let me remind you again, you have already been rescued. Therefore, live a life worth meeting. Live a life that you were designed for. When we are being lured into not living by righteous and good standards, what we need is to, be remind, to remind ourselves of the gospel. And this is what Peter does here. He tells of this great salvation, and then he says, in light of this glorious truth, be holy. So here's a practical exercise. Some of you are living in guilt and shame. Some of us are doing that. Some of us are struggling with sin, and it seems to be constantly on us. We have tried and tried and tried to, to do what we can, but here's what I would suggest to you because of what the Bible says. 
when tempted, when sin is raging, preach the good news to your heart. Remember that Jesus has already done for you what you can never do for yourselves. Remember that on that great day of judgment, you will be received by God as his son, as his daughter because of what Christ has done. Preach the gospel to yourself. Some of you say that's silly. No, it's biblical. Remind yourselves of the great salvation that we have given and that will fuel us towards holy living. We're about to sing a song. So if you guys want to come on up the, the, the worship team, we're about to sing a song called Come Thou Fount. And I love the verse that says this, and, and I know we can identify with this. It says, prone to wander, wander away. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Then he says, Here, here's my heart, God. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. Even this hymn writer knew that his staying power, his salvation to the end, was all about Jesus Christ sealing that. So, Father, I pray for the hurting, the sinful, the brokenhearted, the fainthearted, the weak in the room. That is all of us. Father, that you would help us to remember the gospel. Holy Spirit, may our fuel be that, God, you love us. We are accepted in your heart. We are accepted in your mind. We are accepted in your courts, not by our own self-righteousness because of the finished work of Christ. Remind us that Christ said on the cross, it is finished. Father, there are many of us in this room who are so weary and hurting. We feel so bogged down with shame and guilt. We have secret sins in our life that no one knows about. Secret porn struggles, secret anger and bitterness struggles, secret materialism that we're trying to somehow buffer and keep at bay. And Father, I pray that sin and guilt would not rule the day. I pray that the gospel would ring forth, that the fount of the gospel would come and rest on us and that you would give us faith in our weary hearts and souls that we remember again and again that Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am chief that we would remember that Christ not only told us that he loves us but he demonstrates his love for us and while we were yet sinners Christ died for us that we would remember today that in all of our spiritual exhaustion, that when God looks at us, he says, that's my son, that's my daughter, and I delight in them, and I sing grace and mercy over them. Father, give us faith and help us in our unbelief. Come, thou fount of every blessing. Flood us, Lord, with your goodness and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.